0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode of Cutting the Curd is brought to you by Conte Cheese Association. Conte. An iconic cheese from the Jura mountains of France, favored by cheesemongers and cheese lovers all over the world. Find out more at comte-usa.com. That's comte-usa.com.
2: And welcome to Cutting the Curd on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Kara Warren. And today on the show, I have Peter Dixon and Rachel Fritz-Schall of Parish Hill Creamery and Dairy Foods Consulting based in the village of Westminster, West Vermont. Hooray for Vermont, another, another great cheesemaker we're going to talk about. Uh, what's so awesome about them is they are committed to traditional cheesemaking uh, with a mission to demonstrate natural is possible uh, they encourage small cheesemakers to make the most of the best milk possible. Um, also, huge applause to Peter. It's his 40th year making cheese. Uh, he's been doing it since 1996. He's traveled from Albania to Shanghai, working with hundreds of cheesemakers as a teacher and consultant. Uh, Rachel, also making cheese with him, they opened Parrish Hill in 2013. Uh, she has been helping him run the dairy foods consulting uh, and their school at Westminster Artisan. Uh, Peter, Rachel, welcome to the show. Hi. Hi. Thanks for
3: having me. I love it.
2: I love it. Yeah. No, we're we're stoked to have you here. Um, I feel like you guys are um, legendary in the biz um, and know how to make cheese the way it should be made. Um, So I wanted to ask you, I don't know who should answer this question first, but uh, how has the cheese making season been going? I know everything's just kind of started up.
3: Flippin' Awesome. We're having it's so today is the end of our third week for the 2022 season, and uh, glorious cheese every single batch,
4: 18 batches so far.
3: Wow. Okay.
2: And how many can you say how many wheels you get per batch? Depends on the
3: cheese. Uh, oh, that's true. So let's yeah. see. And, and actually, we uh, pair, or, um Putty School has been breaking records for production this season. We've had the, the most milk. Um, we only take <clears throat> one day's worth of milk. We 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 never hold milk more than uh, 20 hours. So in just those two milkings, uh, today we got 1,900 pounds, which wow. is amazing for us. And so let's see, um, out of 1,900 pounds, we would get, what, like 48 humbles yeah. or...
4: 19 cornerstone mm-hmm. or 14 reverie or
1: how many six idols? Vermont
4: Herdsman or, <laughs> <idol laughs> or idol or <laughs> idol. I,
2: I love it. I love it. Cause I know the humble is like a, what do you like a pound, maybe two pounds. Oh, oh four, pounds. four pounds. Oh, that's okay. That's a bigger one. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, and what do you think that is for the milk, uh, coming so much more milk production this year for the Putney school.
4: Oh, uh, well, it's, it's dairy farming. It's breeding, of course. So uh,
3: everybody got it's, bread. It's, uh,
4: you know, having <laughs> most of your cows uh, are in milk. So uh, the, when we started back on May 1st, um, there were uh, two cows that just freshened that week. In fact, very exciting Two cows are brown Swiss cows from Shelburne Farms.
3: New cows on the... They
4: were purchased through dealing with my brother, Sam, who manages the farm up there. Right, right. And they added brown Swiss cows to the herd because we have been encouraging them to add brown Swiss in to join the Holsteins and Jerseys. Because uh, my experience at Shelburne Farms making cheddar many years ago taught me that the brown Swiss milk was an ideal milk for a cheesemaker. It has a nice high protein content and a moderate fat, so uh, very exciting to have those cows in the herd. Well, in
3: particular, yeah, good for good for the cheeses that we make. Yeah,
2: yeah, no, that that is awesome. And how did you guys find the Putney School to link up with? Was that just you were in the area and you found ooh, them, ooh. or did you start them overall? Like, I don't know enough about the Putney School.
4: Well, I'm, I went there as a day student, I graduated in 1975, my brother followed me, he graduated in 79. So we grew up here in this area, very close to the school. Uh, the school has always had a dairy farm as part of its program of education, meaning that the students at least once during their career at Putney School have got to do the barn chores. Um, when I went there it was uh not quite as exciting, I don't think for the kids and uh, there was only a small group that really gravitated toward the farm nowadays they've really integrated it more as an educational experience um, for the kids where where many of these kids uh, especially young girls young are uh, yeah, girls. Um young are women. Young women. That's what I want to see. Yeah, young females.
2: No, I, I love it. I uh, love it. That's why you and are, Rachel are an uh, awesome team. Able, anyway,
4: yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well they're they're able to uh do things like um learn pasture management, learn how to uh how to do a breeding program, learn about cow nutrition, calving and calving, and you know, within that they're milking cows every day with the farm managers. There are three, there are actually four adult, uh, you know, teachers or farm manager type uh, folks that uh, that are there and take turns working with the students. um, But to to answer
3: your question, cows. (laughs) No, no, but
4: no, it's it's all good information because this is
2: all going to cheesemakers. You know, this is is all info for cheesemakers.
4: I did the part about what what happens at the Putty School you know and, and why they have the dairy farm uh Rachel can tell you how we we ended up finding them uh or deciding to to work with them
3: um yeah so we when we were thinking about starting up this parish hill creamery looking around for sources of of milk and there are not i mean the the kinds of production that we were looking for to make the kind of cheese that we make there just aren't that many of them in fact they were pretty much the only game in town They're the
4: closest one, right? Definitely.
3: Yeah. So six miles away. Um, we were looking for something, you know, 10 miles at the most. So it was exciting to find them, you know, closer than 10 miles. But the other thing was, um, Peter was able to talk to Pete Stickney, who's the, um, herdsman, one of the herdsmen there. And, sort of the head of the program and talk to him about what it was that we were looking to do and what we would require in terms of milk quality and, um, production practices, uh, specifically that, that went during the time that we're making cheese, the, the cows cannot be fed any ensiled feed, um, needed to be, uh, fresh grass, dry hay. um, They have
4: to be on pasture. So our, our, Cheese making year is always dictated by when the cows can get on to pasture and when they come off. This year was a nice early start at May one, um, and then uh, we don't know how long it'll go, but it's usually to Halloween. But every year is a little different, so we're looking at about six months.
3: But the 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 thing that was wonderful and um, made it so that we could actually start Parishell Creamery was that the the herdsman was willing to go along with us and to make sure that there was sufficient dry hay Mm -hmm. and, you know, make sure that the pastures were managed in a way that the animals could actually be out grazing every day while we're during our season. Without that, we would not have been able to do what we do.
4: What was cool about it was it's, it's the kind of farm that was characteristic of Vermont. um, When I was a kid and up into my twenties, when I started cheese making in 1983, um, and that's the kind of um, farm that was prevalent around here where they had smaller herds, about 30 to 40 cows. All the farmers put them on pasture. It was still the time of the old fashioned barns with the big hay storage mouths and the smaller, you know, understory where the cows were milked on pipelines. So that they didn't even have parlors back then. And um, And so and there was a lot more dry hay being fed. In fact, the silage was really corn a small amount of it uh was was done by some of the farmers, but there was a lot of hand and a lot of dry hay. It was square bales. So we weren't even into the round bales yet. And then, you know, when we got into the eight nineteen eighties came the the era of uh wrap balage. and and so that's we sort of production. Yeah, lot and yeah. Yeah. I mean I think the farmers back when I was young did milk year round. So that sort of seasonal farm had gone by the wayside, which would have been more heading into the, the 1950s. There were still a lot of seasonal farms, but I'm talking more like, you know, 70s, 80s, the style of dairy farming that existed.
3: That, that almost doesn't exist anymore. Yeah,
4: and Putney School has had that. They're, they're actually, pre- they have that, excuse me. They're actually practicing that. And so they have a very, had a w- very well-developed, pasture rotation program going which was exciting for us
3: unseeded pastures yeah
4: and uh, yeah they hadn't fertilized with synthetic fertilizer or done any seeding uh in 20 years when we, by the time we came along uh, wow. so that was super yeah super exciting i mean the thing we're into is trying to bring forth the terroir its terroir driven cheese or, if if you will, the taste of this place, Westminster, Putney, sort of southern, southeastern Vermont. Um, and, you know, to have a farm like that to work with, it was just like a nugget of gold that we found. Because that's what you want if you want to be a raw milk cheese maker. And you, you want to make your cheese when the animals are on pasture. And you want the farmers to supplement with dry hay, and you don't want to get into any silage stuff because that brings in other kinds of bacteria that aren't really part of the uh, the natural flora, I would say.
3: Yeah, and can cause some really problems. Quality
4: yeah, also. and then there are the issues with gases and stuff. So I just didn't want to mess with that. I've been around too long to, to know that that was, was not going to be a, a good idea.
3: They were also yeah. psyched work with us because we were willing – I mean, because when we went to them and we're getting ready to write up the contract, what we were offering to pay for the milk yeah. was considerably more than the, what they had been getting. Um, so they they are also happy about that. And for us, it is yeah, worth I, that premium to be able to to know for sure that we are not going to be getting um, any of those any, any milk made with the ensiled feeds.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a lot of guys. You just shared a load of information for uh-huh all of the up-and-coming cheesemakers, like how to source milk, there's there's so much good information there um, that I'm just really glad you, you, went, you went at length about it because I think mm-hmm. if you're going to make cheese, you need good milk. And to consider all of those things, distance, herdsmen, uh, what the cows are eating, it's, it's super, super important. And I love that you guys are advocates for this. Um, it actually brings me to my next point about, because um, I saw Rachel, I think I saw you at ACS bring this up. But you're both advocates for uh, starters and natural ripening cultures and like and making them and doing them and, 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 and not um, buying them from a lab, which most uh, often cheesemakers that are, are not um, of your si- style, seasonal cheese making, they don't do that. Can you, uh, can you talk more about what that means and, and, and how you go about making sure that it, you know, it works well for you?
4: So the, the way I got onto that, and then I, I, I convinced Rachel to, to follow along with this and screaming to be, to do <laughs> completely that way with those, with those starters um, was that when I was working in Armenia and then before that in Macedonia and Albania, I noticed that, that they were, all the cheesemakers were using raw milk. So there was no pasteurizing uh, going on. And then secondly, They most often didn't even use a a culture, so the milk, not being cooled down, uh, you know, below say 55 degrees at night, was pretty lively. And so they would bring that in, you know, from the evening, the afternoon milking plus the morning milking would go into these creameries to be made into cheese. And they they really didn't. I mean, a lot of the farmers were still milking in wooden barns by hand. So when you have milk like that, it's got a much more lively microbiology to it. It's got a lot more lactic acid-producing bacteria in it than, you know, here we could say, um, okay, we can do the same thing. We can, you know, keep the milk at at a warmer temperature overnight, and then we can blend it with the morning milking without cooling the morning milking and have a lively milk to work with. That's what we do. Here a parashul to make all of our cheese. That's a real established method of making raw milk cheese, and it, it's part of the natural method of making raw milk cheese. So um, the thing, though, the difference is that our dairies, because they have to be licensed under the the federal system, Grade A type milk production, for the most part, they they have a lot of stainless steel, a lot of pipeline cleaning, and it's you know much more. I would say quote sanitary approach to to dairy farming, so that the bacteria counts are quite low actually in the milk, unlike they were in Armenia where where I worked and or macedonia and so and so what what i what i discovered was that we needed to make a starter culture and so uh um, that uh, is uh how I started um investigating how that was done uh all those years ago
3: the milk that most people are using and even the milk that we are using is actually too clean (laughs) yeah um too clean (laughs) to produce without culture
4: it doesn't have enough lactic acid producing bacteria in it to do the job on its own we've actually tried it and it it just isn't doesn't have enough so we we need this small amount of of like a yogurt, like a homemade yogurt. Rachel, Rachel can describe how uh, how we make it.
3: Well, actually, I want to go back just a little uh-huh. bit and say that um, you you make a good point that almost every cheese that's made, certainly in the U.S., is going to be made using these selected starters that um, come from a laboratory. They're isolated. They're cultures that exist in cheeses that you know and love, and they've been um, extracted and propagated. Uh, and then freeze dried <laughs> um, in a way that, that, uh, well, and specifically they're made for uh, using pasteurized milk.
4: Yeah. So, so the lab, are, I'm just going to jump in for just a quick do it. minute and then get back. you get back. But I just wanted to explain <laughs> that, that they work it out, you know, in the lab using like a pasteurized milk media thing that's super nutritious growth media for these bacteria um, and they uh they watch how the different strains of the lactic acid bacteria work in that that pasteurized milk um, or nutrient media and and they they pick out the ones based on their properties, like you know if you want a fast acting culture, they'll pick a couple fast acid producing strains if you want a more modest one and on and on and so what they're known as are selected strain starters because you only have you know a handful at most like maybe five five different strains in the culture versus when you make it you know yourself you're getting dozens of strains yeah
3: so um yeah so so the way that you learn to make cheese here in the states um because for the most part, we're not learning from our mother, our grandmother, um, our aunt or uncle, you know, well, um, right. <laughs> know. No, yeah. passed down that way. Most of us learn to make cheese as first timers. Mm-hmm. And um, the way that we are, you know, most often taught, certainly at land grant institutions, um, is generally make, you know, pasteurize your milk um, standardize it or, you know, get it to, to exactly the right ratio of protein and fat that you want to make whatever this specific cheese is. And then you add these lab laboratory isolated starter cultures, selected starter cultures. And that way, you know, what you're going to get, you know, you have this notion of what it is you're going to make people understand what it is. They can identify it. And so many of us are really trying to recreate, you know, create, recreate something that already exists. And one of the things that Peter Used to sell me on the idea of doing it this way was, uh, we have this excellent milk, and um, a talented cheesemaker, and so instead of depending on these specific starters, what if we just used lactic acid producers, really strong ones um, that he already knew about, and if we just use them as a kickstarter and really depended on the microbial diversity within our milk, within our raw milk, and see what we got out of that. So really, perishable cheeses are the result of um, kickstarting the acid producers, um, and then the, the traditional techniques, you know, the physical techniques, the curd size, how much heat you apply, um, the size and shape of the wheels, or in the case of, say, Suffolk Punch, you know, the shape of the stretched curd as opposed to right. going into it saying, "Okay, I want to make a Gruyere style cheese or I want to make a Camembert style cheese." We didn't have we didn't have that intention with any of our cheeses. It really was more about what will this particular milk do mm-hmm. if we treat it in these using these traditional methods.
4: We wanted to find out what it would do and it was interesting because unlike a lot of my career where I did what Rachel was prefacing that with which is like just dialing everything in because that you you're focused on the outcome and it's got to be that kind of cheese we actually we we of course were inspired by by many uh cheeses that are made and so our like our suffolk punch and kashar those are stretched curd hard t- cheese like you would find from Italy all the way through Central Asia, that style of cheese is made. They call it kashar in Turkey, um, or and kashkavalo in Italy, kashkaval in the Balkans. So, so that's one inspiration source. And then, of course, you know Vermont herdsman. That's inspired by Asiago. Uh, the thought of making a whole milk Asiago always was was something I wanted to do. and so But so no one's going to, gonna, to no one's
3: gonna yeah, mistake yeah. our Vermont herdsmen for, yeah, for
4: yeah.
3: a full-fat Asiago right. that they had in Italy. It is in Italy, Vermont herdsmen.
4: It's not yeah. supposed to be that. That's why we never even mention Asiago except here on this radio show, <laughs> so people can know what inspired, what inspired me to make it. It's a cheese I've carried around with me for like 22 years now. I started making it in a different business here in the village, that i was involved in and then i made it at consider barbell farm it was called rupert so that's you no know, recipe for that cheese
3: came from me except for you didn't use yeah. this is the yeah right. is the first time that you're actually using we the
4: native recipes. starters and yeah. so what we found out was that um that each cheese we make of the we're at 13 cheeses now it, wow. it's kind of got its own timeline for when it's the most excellent so like you know, that cheese I'm just talking about, Vermont Herzman, it, it's um, it's really best at a certain period within a, a, a window of time, not a single point in time. And exactly. we had to experience when it started to come into the window and go, wow, taste the, the change that that has occurred in that cheese. Now it's really delicious. And then knowing like, what, how it evolves because it's a hard cheese, you know. Like, what happens when it's three years old? And then, you know, so what I'm trying to say is that each cheese that Great. we make is we found its own zone. Unlike, like saying it has to be ready in a year, right? We just, right. we're patient and we're waiting and going with the flavor and going, wow, now that is very fine right now let's let's start selling that because it doesn't taste like anything else really i guess is what i'm trying to say uh it's its own thing you know it it they become their own thing
2: so do do you save wheels on the side knowing their
3: trajectory uh knowing, well i mean I, the way that we found out was <clears throat> let's try it at 6 months uh gotcha. no they're there there yeah. Then try it at nine months. Oh, it's better. Try it at twelve months. Oh, much better. And then, and then, but you know, also we've had them where you know sometimes you lose a wheel. Um, yeah. It gets stuck on the wrong shelf, and so you you think that you're all sold out, and then it turns out you've got a wheel that you know you check your mark <laughs> and you're like, oh wait a second, that's actually three and a half years old. And three and a half years old is actually a little long for that cheese. But um, I mean, and definitely. <sighs> Uh, that's, that's pricey real estate to keep something around for, for three and a half years. So we don't do it.
4: Well, often. Uh, yeah, we don't do it often, but we do it. And I I think one of the things that, that has been exciting for me at Parish is that I get to do that because we have our school, we do c- consulting work and we make cheese for six months every year. And we're, we're not beholden to like push cheese out the door. Uh, we wait until it's aged uh, sufficiently to get the flavor that we really want to put out there, um, and uh, and we've we've this cheese we make called Idle. We wait for uh, over two years before we release it on purpose, so that it always gets into that zone. And I've never been able to do that in my career, except when I made cheddar at Shelburne Farms. You know, we would, we had our two-year cheddar there, but.
2: Huh. That, that's super yeah. exciting that you have this yeah.
4: like flexibility, this
2: independence to do what you want. I really, um, I applaud you guys for being at that point right now. Um, I want to take a quick break for our listeners, um, and for our sponsor, and um, then I want to talk about Affinage with you guys right after the break. So, uh, hey everyone, you're listening to Cutting the Curd. I have uh, Rachel and Peter Parachelle with me, and we'll be right back.
1: This episode of Cutting the Curd is brought to you by Comté Cheese Association. Comté Cheese Association represents the Comté PDO, Comté Protected Designation of Origin, in the USA. Comté is a raw milk cooked pressed cheese from the Jura Mountains of France. There, every day, 2,500 family farms deliver milk to over 150 local cheesemaking facilities, or fritiers. This milk must be transformed into Comté within 24 hours of milking to preserve the lactic microflora in the milk, ensuring the cheese's aromatic potential. About 105 gallons of milk are required to craft a single wheel of Comté. Comté takes time to acquire its flavors in the affinage cellars. After eight months of aging by dedicated affineurs on average, each wheel of Comté is graded and shipped to market. No wheel of Comté is the same. That's C-O-M-T-E-hyphen-U-S-A dot com. Hey,
2: everyone. Welcome back to Cutting the Curd. I'm your host, Kara Warren. And today on the show, I have Rachel and Peter of Parrish Creamery. And we're about to jump into the affinage section of the program because um, a lot of their cheeses have really cool, natural rinds um, that have lots of beautiful colors on them and patterns and... um, uh, I just wanted to say how much fun is it for you guys to be doing your own affinage? It, it, we talked a little bit before the break about it, but um, you know, like even how, how do yeah, like, how did you get into affinage? Did you, did you go to France or is it just from hanging out in Vermont?
3: Um, what's your vibe on that? Uh, you know, I, everything I learned, I learned from this guy. Uh. So um, that's not true. I've taken a couple classes, but um
0: um
3: well it's kinda of funny, I don't actually do any affinage. I'm all I'm I'm all at the VAT. Uh well, Peter does you
4: really run the business. She does the finances. Wow. Yeah. There's like a lot of correspondence and communicating.
3: I'm the person who doesn't call you back if you call me and. <laughs> <laughs> I never
4: call you back, so you know. So at least we have Thanks. Rachel.
3: <laughs> My sister is the one. My sister started. She
4: gravitated towards it yeah, naturally, she- actually.
3: <laughs> she was with us when we started the business and quickly discovered that she that the the make room was not her scene at all. Yeah. It was um, there were too many things that were left. At the end of the day, you weren't sure what was going to end up happening, what the cheese would become. And she really enjoys. She takes care of the humble, the hermit, the, the cornerstone, the blues. Those are the ones. Yeah. And,
4: and and I take care of the other stuff. Um, and I guess I would just say that uh, I'm a, I'm a voracious reader of cheese. I, I've never like I said earlier, my experiences is going to other lands where cheese is made have been in the Balkan countries of Albania and Macedonia, and uh, former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia, excuse me.
3: I should get that right,
4: because Greek people are very (laughs) sensitive to that. And then uh, Armenia. And so what I saw there was essentially just cheese-like stretched curd hard cheese that's what they make in those countries for the aged cheese uh in the Balkan countries and those are natural rind cheeses there's a salt dry salting process that takes about uh 3 weeks leading into the aging which is about a 90 day minimum there and then in uh, and the, so they get these rustic rinds but with with lots of mold growing on them because they don't do anything to them during the time except turn them And then what's interesting there is they they scrub it all off under cold water, put the wheels out in the sun on a cool day to get golden yellow. And I've seen this done with Ragusano as well, like with the Caccia Cavallos in uh, Italy. It's an interesting technique. So I saw that. And then when I went to Armenia, they, because they were a Soviet republic, they, they actually were the leading cheese making republic of the Soviet Union. And so they had all this Swiss cheese making still going on in the, the more alpine area in the north. And they had a lot of blue cheese making going on. There and so uh you know I saw firsthand how they aged those cheeses, but everything else I've learned has just been through reading and th- and watching some videos more recently and then trial and error just trying things out uh and essentially by be- having been a teacher since ninety six and and having you know Going well, you know. I better learn more about blue cheese, and I better learn how to make a, a few varieties so I can teach people about it. It, it has charged me to learn affinage. That that's really the way I've done it, not so, by going anywhere special. But
3: never been to France.
4: Never dang been it. to France. Dang it!
2: <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I like that because um, that's usually the story. Someone travels to France to learn about affinage. I, I like that you've gone a more rustic route. Um, yeah. I, I, I think that's really, really cool. Um, I wanted to ask you, it's kind of a, a fun question. Can people build their own Afanaj caves? Is that even possible? I mean, I, I'm sure it is, but like, is it easy? Is it hard? What's, what do you think?
4: Oh
3: boy, <laughs> that is so, it's so complicated. This um, is another, so easy.
4: Another convincing Rachel that it will work.
3: Yeah. Story. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> even better. I think we all that as cheesemakers, um we we have this romantic notion about the caves, you know, the, the these cheese caves underground. And
4: cellars. It,
3: well, but I mean a cheese cave. Yeah, a yeah. real
4: cheese like cave, 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 a naturally
3: existing uh-huh. cave. And so like
4: the caves of Kambalou or the Roquefors. Yeah.
3: And it is mm-hmm. very romantic, but um and so I think that that it has been not uncommon to try and recreate that, um, digging holes and using cement, um, and then you know filling back over. But it turns out that the, huh, in our climate, in our climate, no <laughs> oh, <laughs> I matter mean, I mean, where you are, if you uh, you know, cement is never going to be the same thing as a limestone cave.
4: Yeah, the difference is like you've got this unless you're so far down in the ground with your cement bunker uh the the soil is going to start warming up uh and then it's going to be it's going to reach this maximum temperature that it reaches every year and unless you're so far below that that the the bunker won't warm up it's kind of at cross purposes to do it because then you end up using a ton of energy to cool the thing during the hottest months of the year uh, so I I saw through my travels, <laughs> mostly in California, how some of the cheesemakers were just getting used food storage trailers, like these 48-foot tractor trailers that had been used in the food industry to haul food around or frozen or fresh refrigerated yeah. type boxes, to use them as as very effectively as cheese aging rooms.
3: And we actually... We have one of those, and uh it was I was so chagrined um because it wasn't pretty or romantic, but um mm-hmm. <laughs> we had it and we filled it with all of the wood that we had had in our in our underground aging space um and though it, we
4: were renting and before we got and, that sorry
3: and it um I cannot tell you how happy the cheese is in there. Um, it is still not attractive to me, but the cheese itself is gorgeous, and everyone that goes in there, I mean, they—it's always a oh wow, you I know. Could I could mean, do this. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, what, <laughs> what, what's more important, necessary? I mean, so what it—it it all comes down to is being able to control the environment, um, but also understanding the tipping points of how much cheese you can have in a space um, in order to maintain the appropriate dew point um humidity temperature you know all of those things are, are what really matters and and having the appropriate amount of cheese in there it it yeah it's very happy um gotcha yeah, no I, that's good that's good information because
2: i i had a dream <laughs> that i might be able to start my own caves and i was like let me see with peter and rachel they would know and this was well, this was very educational.
4: We, the other, <laughs> other place we have is an is a root cellar that was built in uh, the nineteen fifties in our village that we rent from a neighbor. And that's actually the place we've had cheese for the longest time. I've had cheese in there that I've made for the past 20 years. And you know, that's where Parishal started aging its cheese. That that place works fine. It's it's actually nice and humid all the time. It's got refrigeration because to fight through the hot summer it's got to be cooled it's not far enough in the ground to to stay cold uh, but it's for most of the year it's a lovely uh space to age cheese in there's a little bit of you know seasonal changes in there because it's a little drier in the summer when the um refrigeration's running but not dangerously dry so it works really good
3: well luckily that's the time of year that we're bringing the new cheese in which is which is uh helps high moisture content and helps helps to keep that vapors
4: and and that's that that's why we do the wash dry and the monastic style cheeses and the blues in that that room because it favors that those styles versus the um the The mobile. mobile we call it the the box
2: Gotcha! Yeah, you know, oh man, cool you guys live cool. and breathe cheese. I love it. It's uh, it, do you ever have a dinner conversation that doesn't talk about
4: cheese? Very we, infrequent. We try not to, but we <laughs> especially when oh. we're, we're
3: <laughs> well, because there's cheese in every. It's very yeah. It's in, incredibly infrequent. What are you kale. gonna do? You Some put out functions. your
4: cheese. Yeah. <laughs>
2: I, I listen, I, it's, it's the way we all live. I, I think most listeners uh, that are, are you know, listening to cutting the curd, they understand your, your, what you're talking about. <laughs> so uh, you're in awesome. good company here. Um, I, I wanted to check in on one of your uh, projects that's been ongoing, a Cornerstone project, um, which was where uh, you guys and two other farms were making the same recipe with the same parameters. Um, and it was to prove that terroir existed within the artisanal American movement. Um, is that still happening? Are all three farms still making the cheese? Um, how's that going?
3: Yeah. Um, so all three farms are still making the cheese. And in fact, Cato Corner and Parish Hill are both sending cheese to Ohio for a fermentation festival. Unfortunately, uh, um, Bertrand Hills doesn't ha- didn't have cheese for it this season, but, uh, Sue is still making the cornerstone, you know, in 20, what was that? 2019, we were poised to, um, try to expand the cornerstone project and go, you know, go on to that next level because all three of us were, were doing well, making the cheese and, um, yeah, it was working. And so we were really ready to start doing that. And then, you know, the same thing that Stopped everybody's everything, stopped uh, us right. too. So, we, so it's been sort of a two year. We we've all been making the cheese since then, but we we really it put the kibosh on on moving forward. We are really hoping that um, that we will be able to expand this uh, because it is part of our mission to to help other cheesemakers encourage uh, other cheesemakers to take a chance. You know, to, I mean, the cornerstone project was really about. Um, getting these other people who are interested in trying out natural cheesemaking to, to do this. And, and as a group, to have support with one another, um, Mm -hmm. to have other people to, to talk over, you know, issues or delights. Um,
4: Yeah. We consider it a collaboration. So, uh, so, but what, what's, what's really, I think the essential thing of it that is exciting uh to me and i think rachel too is that in order to make the cheese you have to learn how to make your own starter culture from milk of cows from your herd so you go out and select cows that you, you can hand milk you know that that are easier to hand milk you, you collect a small amount of that milk strain it um if they kick the bucket over you go back and do it again but
3: or pick another cow
4: pick another cow but anyway <laughs> try to get some nice clean milk in a jar you let it curdle naturally. It takes a couple of days. You select the ones that are are the good looking yogurty type ones that taste the the way you want, and then you go and you start your culture making from those. And so to make Cornerstone, you have to do that. And so we worked with Mark, Mark and Sue pretty closely. It took them, you know, uh, I don't know, I don't really remember. It was within I mean it was within, within the year within
3: that season? they, yeah, they had were their they programs were, running. were doing it. Mm-hmm. So, That's really uh,
2: cool. And were there differences in the cheeses? Like, were you guys able to try all three different uh, farms batches and, and find differences? Yeah, or?
3: We did it
4: at ACS, right? Yeah, we did it
3: at ACS. In
4: Pittsburgh, yep. we, there was a panel presentation. And, and folks got to try session. all three, yeah.
3: yeah. Uh, and then we've had other opportunities to try ours and and theirs
4: some of the shops are carrying uh, a couple of varieties like
3: who was it Who's
4: uh our co-op had Cato oh, right. corners brattle down in brattleboro, brattleboro Vermont, co-op had-, had the Cato corner in ours at the same time so that's kind of cool
3: yeah, so cool. The, actually that that brings up another point of the the project was also to have an opportunity for mongers And consumers, you know, to have the conversation about by tasting these cheeses and talking about what's the same and what's different to be able to talk about what what terroir means. What does it mean? You know, why is raw milk important? What what happens differently and what can you ascertain?
4: Yeah. Like as a cheese eater. Yeah. Like being a vehicle for the cornerstone. You have Cato Corner Farm, which has a herd of jerseys, pasture. Just you know uh mo- is when he makes it when the cows are on pasture uh the birch run hills farm holstein herd, but
3: she only, also only also, makes it oh,
4: she only makes it when they're on pasture yeah and um but it's not as 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 the same as Putney school, which is as th- mixed Holstein jerseys and some brown and Swiss now, now, now brown
3: Swiss mm-hmm. <laughs> <Not there. laughs>
4: So exactly. What you, what you taste in the cheeses is really, I mean, it's profound. Yeah. Let's just say it really shows you where terroir comes from, the land and the animals and those farmers yeah. that are taking care of them. And the cheese, as cheesemakers, we're just sort of like, I'd call us transformers or shepherds of the milk. We're, robots we're,
3: in disguise.
4: Yeah. Robots <laughs> in disguise.
3: We're,
4: we're, uh, we're, we're not doing anything all that, uh, Extremely technical to make this cheese. It's just a sim- simple recipe to make kind of a, a semi-cooked Tom-style cheese. Is kind of what I made up. Uh, but the other thing that's cool about it is is you have to use traditional calf rennet. So, oh yeah, rennet. You know, you don't have to make your own rennet, but you have to use calf rennet. So no thin- synthetic coagulants are used. And the the thing that I think a lot of cheesemakers never even bothered to think about, question or or try is salt. It's the ingredient that I salt. am obsessed. It's because you know having had this long career and just throw together any whatever salt I can you know get that's not uh, iodized and use that for my cheese. That's kind of been the the go to way, and everybody I know the same thing. So. So what we did for Cornerstone was say, you have to find a salt works near you and get your salt from them, the closest one to you. And ours is Maine. We, the Maine Cheese Salt Company, we buy all of our salt from them for all of our cheeses. So we were already doing that because, again, like getting back to the ethos of Parachelle, it's like let's try to find ingredients that are produced as close as possible to our place and let's make cheese. And so for Cornerstone, it was like, "Hey guys, let why don't you guys try this too?" And so the I believe three you of actually us,
3: just said you have to. Yeah.
4: <laughs> well, they were su- they, they were, were so to- like, to- psyched to do yeah, it that yeah. it wasn't even a.
3: It was. All, it. I mean, it is. It's all yeah. very. It's exciting.
4: I. Think, I'm glad yeah. you hit
3: on the rennet though.
4: Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, you have <laughs> to. You can't just. You've got to really be careful when you want to approach this idea of terroir-driven cheese. With how you do it, what are the ingredients? There are only four essential ingredients to making, you know, raw milk cheese: the raw milk, a starter culture. Yes, we have to use one; our milk is too clean. Some places in the world, some of the most amazing cheeses we get, they don't even use starter, and it's part of the rules of production. But and then the third ingredient, the rennet. You know, it's got to be if you want to be a traditional cheesemaker, it should be from a plant or animal source. And then finally there's the salt and yeah, you know, fine salt where it was right made on. back in the day. Right. And and here in New England, it was made along the coast, I wonder solar evaporation and then cooking the final water out of salt right. from the ocean. Mm-hmm-hmm. But what were you going to say? I don't know.
3: <laughs> <laughs> As usual.
2: <laughs> you guys are amazing. I just want to say, um, Thank you both for coming on the show today. This has been really amazing. You're both the real deal in, in, in cheese. Like I just think there was so much good information we put out there today. Um so I just want to thank you guys for being here. Um can you also can tell the listeners we- where they can find your cheese? Yeah. Can I can we say
3: one more thing though before we before we check sure. out? Sure, please. Yes. Well, absolutely. Um, yeah. We're we're working with uh Slow Food. Slow Food International. CQ. Sorry. And um and this summer at ACS we're going to be um doing a present uh, a session with a with the slow food USA representative talking about sort of uh what's what's coming up for uh the for natural cheesemaking um as defined by slow food in the US and sort of trying to drum up some interest and um so we're we're pretty excited about that. Uh, oh man, I'll yeah. be there then. <laughs> <We're> <laughs> I'm going to be you. at that session. I'm yeah, signing
2: yeah. up for
3: that
4: 100%.
3: We're excited. We want
4: help build a network yeah. here. Oh. So oh, That'll be yeah. sort of the kicking it off.
3: Kicking off, yeah. Of the billions. idea.
4: Yeah.
3: So we'll uh-huh. see how that goes.
4: Yay! That, that great. Join <laughs> us. Oh, I, lo-
2: I love it. And, and where yeah. can people find huh. your cheese? If they want to buy it nationally or...
3: Yeah. Uh, you um, know. We have a, a distribution in... Um, the, the New York metropolitan area in New England um, also in Chicagoland and in both Los Angeles and the Bay area cool. and of course our website although this year hard and fast we're not sending cheese unless uh, we're, we're only doing uh, mail orders when it's cool enough or in New England because it's so sad when people order cheese and gets
4: there yeah unless they want to pay for a two-day shipping anyway yeah
3: yeah no listen
2: you're getting into a whole other rant that every everyone knows about who loves cheese it's (laughs) a a rough world on cheese shipping and it just doesn't doesn't make sense always. (laughs) um but uh i want to thank you both thank you both for everything today this was great um i am excited for everyone to see you guys at acs Um, And discover Parish Hill. Um, They can discover you on Instagram at Parish Hill Creamery. We are. Um, And I just want to say to all the listeners out there, thank you for listening to Cutting the Curd. I'm your host, Kara Warren, and you got to eat more cheese. Cheers. This show is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.